Welcome everyone. Welcome everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming to the Transformations Cluster Seminar Series. We're very pleased to welcome Professor S Phil Feinberg, who's traveled all the way from the University uh, from Durham University, and he's visiting from the um, Department of Geography there. Uh, Professor Steinberg moved to Durham in 2013 after working in the Department of Geography at Florida State University for uh, 16 years with interludes at the New York Public Library's Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers, um, the University of California Santa Cruz Cruz's Center for Cultural Studies, where um, you may or may not know that he came up with an algorithm to analyze sea monsters on maps, which he might tell you about a little later, and um, also Royal Holloway. Um, Professor Steinberg's research focuses on the historical, ongoing, and imaginary projection of social power onto spaces whose geophysical and geographic characteristics make them resistant to state territorialization, such as the world ocean, the internet, and the Arctic. His work spans multiple disciplines, such as research on subjects su such as art and photography, the universe of electronic communications, islands and utopias, geographic and environmental education, to name a few. Dr. Steinberg is also the associate editor of Political Geography. He recently published the article with Kimberly Peters in Environment and Planning D called Wet Ontologies, Fluid Spaces, giving, giving Depth to Volumes Through Oceanic Thinking. Today, he's going to talk to us about the geography of territory, rethinking space through Arctic materialities. Please join me in welcoming Professor Steinberg. Thanks, Ariel, and um, thanks all for coming out here. I got a little tweet from the RGS today that Bob Geldof is speaking at the RGS at the same time, so it's the first time I've ever been up against Bob Geldof, but thanks for choosing me over him, I suppose. Um, also, Ariel, I see there's a little sort of mystery, I don't know, lack of communication on the title, and I got this email from Ariel saying, Here, I've got you down presenting on the geography of territory in the Gottman room, and I thought, well, that's a little too much, so I just put, added the subtitle there, which, uh, although I will be talking about the geography of territory. But I'm going to start off by talking about um, a certain point. Sorry. Maybe I won't work. No. Oh, let's use the arrow keys. Um, <coughs> anyway, I'm going to be talking about something that happened on the 16th of July, 1970. Because on that day, this gentleman, Mario Escamilla, realized that a 15-gallon jug of homemade raisin wine was missing from his home. And he actually heard that it had been taken by a neighbor of his by the name of Porky Rabbit. And so um, Mario did what you know, any normal person would do. They, he went over to Porky's place and um, knocked on the door, went in, found there uh, Porky indeed drinking the raisin wine, uh, actually mixed with 190 proof grain alcohol and then cut with grapefruit, which is um, really disgusting actually. Um, anyway, Porky was there together with uh, this man, Benny Lacey, who actually was a, a third neighbor and happened to be the boss of both Mario and Porky. Um, so Benny and Porky were drinking the raisin wine. Mario said, I want it back, it's mine. They said, you can't have it. Got into an argument. Eventually, Mario gave up, went back to his home, and then a few minutes later, there was a knock on the door. Now, so Mario and Porky actually had a little history of fighting over alcohol in the past. Uh, in fact, just a few weeks earlier, there had been an incident where Porky came after Mario with a meat cleaver. 
So Mario, when there's a knocking on the door, figures I'd better kind of be armed when I answer. So he grabs a loaded rifle, answers the door, and it turns out it's not Porky, it's Benny. Well, they continue the argument. At some point, they get into a little scuffle. The rifle accidentally discharges, and the next thing you know, Benny Lightsey is lying dead on the floor. Now, this all might sound like the opening scene of a Western, perhaps, or maybe where I'm from kind of a Southern morality tale about the evil of drink, something. <laughs> but actually, it's a Northern story. In fact, it's a really, really, really far Northern story, because it happened here, on a place known as T3, or Fletcher's Ice Island, which at the time was a 30-square-mile, 200-foot-thick slab of glacial ice that from 1952 to 1978 was occupied by the US Navy as a research station. Uh, typically, there were about 20 to 30 civilian employees on T3 who occupied it as it sort of roved around the Arctic, as it drifted around the Arctic. Uh, mostly, they were doing work on how sonar travels under ice, which, of course, is very useful for anti-submarine warfare in particular. Uh, Leitze was the chief meteorologist and the station chief on T3. Escamilla was an electronics technician who actually worked for General Motors, which was contracted out to do some of the work on the base. And Porky Levitt was a local Inuit who was providing general maintenance support. Um, I have here a drift track of T3 from 1962 to 1974. So this is kind of the middle of the period that it was occupied by the US Navy. And you see uh, Greenland up there, Ellesmere Island, the northernmost island of Canada, uh, Alaska's up off the map in the other direction. And, um, and at the time of the murder, T3 was located about where that star is, which is to say about 200 miles off the coast of Canada. So there's no question that at the time of the murder, T3 was in international waters. But that then raised an interesting question. Who had the jurisdiction to try the case? Who had the jurisdiction to try the alleged murderer, Escamilla? Now, in one sense, it sounds like there should be a pretty simple answer to that. Because if you go back to that photo that I showed you before, you see there's an American flag flying over T3. It seems kind of obvious. However, the history of US naval policy and US maritime policy has been all about sort of the freedom of navigation being more important than anything else. And that goes back to the 18-teens, 1820s or so. And so the last thing that the US wanted to do was to start an ice grab, was to set a precedent where countries around the world could claim ice sheets and say, these are ours. And then that could form territorial impediments to the freedom of navigation, whether for commercial or military vessels. So from the US perspective, and indeed that of international law, both back then, which was before the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and now under UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, the Arctic Ocean is really just like any other body of water, even though large parts of it still happen to be frozen most or all of the time. In fact, with one small exception of the 300 or so articles in UNCLOS, only one recognizes that the ocean is not always liquid. There's only one slight mention of, of ice in there. So from the US and the international law perspective, the ice sheet T3 was really just a frozen portion of the high seas that was floating on top of liquid high seas. Um, there are two problems with this, though. Uh, the first is that T3 actually consisted of glacial ice that had calved off of Ellesmere Island. So if it was anything floating on top of high seas, you could say it was sort of a runaway piece of Canada that was kind of floating around there. Um, the other problem, though, is that even if you accept this definition of what T3 was, 
then that still leaves open the question of jurisdiction because normally when a crime occurs on the high seas, jurisdiction reverts to the flag state of the ship on which the crime occurred. But here, of course, there's no ship. This is kind of like two people are swimming in international waters and one of them drowns the other. Who gets to try the case? It's not really clear. Um, Canada, which didn't really have a sort of specific stake in the matter, but it was, it was clearly in Canada's neighborhood. And this was right at a time when there was a lot of sort of issues going on in terms of Canada's sovereignty in Arctic waters. Uh, Canada wrote a note to the US saying, well, why don't you just call it a ship? You know, even though it's not, why don't you just call it a ship? Because then you can take, you can get the jurisdiction over the specific case, but you're not making any precedent in terms of territory and sovereignty. Uh, the problem with that is that under international maritime law, the flag state of a ship is responsible for ensuring that that ship does not pose a hazard to the navigation of other vessels. And obviously it's kind of hard to steer an ice sheet. And so the US could sort of see the liability issues coming down the line if they said this is our ship. Uh, you know, what if it sort of then ended up striking a, a real ship? So um, the US didn't like that idea at all. Um, eventually Escamilla was apprehended by military police and brought by helicopter to Thule Air Force Base, uh, US Air Force Base in Greenland, um, where actually, because he was a civilian employee, the US Status of Forces Agreement with Denmark didn't apply. And so there have been some who argue that he actually should have been tried under Danish law, because that was actually where he was first kind of captured by the state system and ended up in sort of legitimate state territory. Um, that said, however, uh, he was then transported from Thule Air Force Base to Dulles Airport in Virginia and indeed Escamilla was tried and in fact, first of all, found guilty of, of involuntary manslaughter in the second district court of Virginia. Uh, but what's interesting though is the judge in accepting jurisdiction of the case never explained why he accepted jurisdiction, which he didn't have to do. There was no reason to do it. And so he just kind of ignored it. Um, so it's not clear really to this day whether he accepted jurisdiction of Escamilla because all of the parties in the case were US nationals and the crime occurred in a juridical vacuum in a kind of non-space, or one could say a super-territorial space, a space beyond territory, or whether he accepted jurisdiction because in fact he considered T2 to be a vessel that is an extra-territorial space, an extension of US territory, or whether in fact he was classifying T3 as an uninhabited, unclaimed island, in which case it could fall under the 1856 Guano Islands Act that the US had passed in 1856, obviously, um, to claim sort of temporary resource extraction rights over uninhabited islands. In other words, it's still not clear to this day whether T3 was considered an ocean, a ship, or an island. There's lots of other interesting stuff in the T3 story, by the way, because if, if you have this fascinating, actually, like constructions of race and nature in this kind of extreme zone, in this, um, you know, interaction, which got played out in the press in some very interesting ways, this interaction of the Mexican-American and the African-American and the Inuit. Um, and of course, there's issues of military landscapes and privatization of the military and all kinds of things going on here. Um, and also, actually, Escamilla ended up being freed on appeal, which itself is a whole other story that I don't have time to get into. But what I do want to draw out of this story is how it tells us a lot about the complexity that occurs in the Arctic as the state system copes with the region's complex geophysical environment. Because through T3, I think we can see how the Arctic sheds a lens on the assumptions and inconsistencies of our accepted understanding of territory. 
what I and my co-authors in the kind of Arctic project that I've pretty much just wound up um, call the modern territorial imaginary. And what I mean by the modern territorial imaginary is this way of thinking that we sort of take for granted that basically binds two binaries together, a geophysical binary and a geopolitical binary. Um, first of all, you have this geopolitical binary, this conception of the world that divides the world into two basic kinds of social spaces. You've got the spaces that matter, the spaces of territory, spaces where nature exists in points and it's differentiated, and then humans transform those natures, uh, creating different kinds of places, social divisions of labor emerge in the process, and eventually you have societies and bounded territories that are then to be developed and the like. Um, and then you have the outside spaces, the spaces that are seen as fundamentally beyond society because they have none of what are deemed to be society's essential social processes. That is production in place, social development, state institutions, all those kinds of things. Non-territory is seen as uncontrolled, unbounded, undevelopable, undevelopable and asocial. And really there's only two reasons to go to those outside spaces, either to cross them to get to another space that matters, to another territory, or perhaps to go into them to extract resources that then can be used to develop a territory. Um, and so what, what the modern territorial imaginary does is it takes that idealized geopolitical binary that divides the world into these two social spaces and then connects it with an equally constructed geophysical binary that sees this stark division of the world between land and sea. And then the pairing of the binaries is naturalized through things like this map, for instance, which happens to be by the CIA, but that's not really the point. What the point of this map is, is that it creates this binary division of brown space and blue space. And of course, the brown space is geophysically land, but geopolitically it's marked by state boundaries, and you, have, you can imagine societies emerging in them. Basically, it's clearly the foreground. And then you have this background of blue nothingness, and then of course the colors brown and blue just further naturalize it that this is a, a geophysical logic that translates into a, a geopolitical logic. So returning to T3, part of what I think, part of why I think it was so difficult to place T3 within the geopolitical binary, in other words, part of why it was so difficult to decide whether it was inside space or outside space or something in between, was because it was so difficult to place T3 within the geophysical binary? Was it land, was it water, or was it something in between? In other words, these ideals of naturalized brown and blue spaces that kind of fuse these two binaries together just don't really work that well in the Arctic. Um, now, in fact, there are all sorts of problems with the modern territorial imaginary. Um, I think most political, social, cultural theorists, et cetera, would have real problems with the geopolitical binary. I mean, anthropologists certainly teach us that societies are not fixed in space or time. Sociologists teach us that movement is not something that's external to society. Uh, political theorists teach us that state power is not restricted to the insides of state territory and it's not applied homogeneously within those territories. Uh, likewise, I think most geoscientists would have problems with the notion of a strict and stable distinction between land and sea. You can point to wetlands, swamps, barrier islands, all these spaces where shorelines move and the like. And that, in fact, does create a lot of juridical complications because you assume stock, solid, stable land that then does not map out into 
the way these spaces are encountered. Uh, furthermore, even if one accepts these binaries, though, they don't always pair up well. And that's not a new problem, actually. So for instance, if you go back to maps from the 17th century, uh, it was quite common to try to represent the Grand Banks, the uh, very rich fishing ground off the coast of Newfoundland. Um, and this posed cartographers with a problem because it's clearly geophysically of the water, it's ocean, you know, it's wet. Uh, and yet at the time, the Grand Banks almost had a sort of land-like political side to them and that it was thought of as a specific space that you went to, it was a destination. And so it couldn't really be represented as land and it couldn't really be represented as water and so cartographers quite commonly actually chose this intermediate uh, representation of stippling. I uh, did a similar thing happening today. Uh, you know, when I told you that this map had this binary representation of blue and brown space, I actually wasn't telling the truth because down at the bottom you have Antarctica, which is a third color. Antarctica is kind of the reverse problem of the Grand Banks. Antarctica is geophysically land, but geopolitically doesn't have all of those land-like qualities. So again, it doesn't quite merit being brown space, but it's certainly not blue space. So let's pick an intermediary representation and make it white. That said, so while this is a, this is a problematic way of thinking of the world no matter what, I think it's particularly problematic within the Arctic for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, Arctic land just doesn't really have all of the classic land-like properties. Uh, if what makes land land from this kind of modern territorial imaginary perspective is that it can be, you can invest in place, you can develop it, you can improve it through agriculture, you can build cities, you can surveil it, you can do all these kinds of things. For various reasons, those don't work as well in the Arctic, again, from a, a Western perspective, which is what I'm, I'm working from here. Um, likewise, Arctic water doesn't have all those watery perspectives. Quite simply, and there's no way to say this without it almost sounding too simple, you know, when water's frozen, it becomes a little bit more like land. So you have land that's not really like land and water that's not really like water. You can see where this doesn't really map out the same way. And of course, that becomes particularly apparent when you look at the livelihoods of Arctic indigenous peoples who have a very different way of moving between land and water than what we imagine in the modern territorial imaginary. Uh, furthermore, for this idea of a, of a fixed binary to work, that boundary has to be communicated. And in fact, I mean, again, this is almost too literal, but when it's all covered by snow, you often don't even know if you're on land on wa or water. So clearly this sort of conceptual mapping doesn't work out experientially. Uh, fourthly, Arctic space is particularly dynamic in both time and space. Uh, dynamic in time with cycles of melting and freezing and then of course secular climate change as well. Obviously that happens in other places too. You know, other places have seasons and they change with the seasons and the like. But those changes I think are particularly dramatic in the Arctic. And also Arctic space is dynamic in space, which sounds like a tautology. But um, you know, think of say Doreen Massey's work on plate tectonics and sort of how she's using the movement of plates uh, to rethink sort of what place is because there's no clear foreground and no clear background because everything is in motion. Well, that's true in a much more extreme way in the Arctic. Uh, just as an example of actually dynamism in both space and time, T3 no longer exists. Shortly after it was abandoned by the US Navy, it went around the north side of it, the north coast of Greenland and went into the Atlantic Ocean and down the Fram Strait 
and has long since now dissipated into the Atlantic. And then finally, so the modern territorial imaginary fits in with a continentalist view of the world, where we think of these blocks of continents and then intervening oceans between them. When you look at the world from a polar perspective, it's a little bit different. You get a different sense of the way the ocean brings the world together rather than separating the continents apart. And this point was made very poetically, actually, by Mikhail Gorbachev in his speech at Murmansk that is usually credited as giving birth to the Arctic Council, uh, where he said, the Arctic is not only the Arctic Ocean, but also the place where the Eurasian, North American, and Asia Pacific regions meet, where the frontiers come close to one another and the interests of states cross. And actually, a similar sentiment was voiced some 20 years later by another great Arctic states person who said, we have that very narrow maritime border between the United States and the 49th state, Alaska and Russia. They're very, very important to us and they are our next door neighbor. You can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska, from an island in Alaska. I'm giving you that perspective of how small our world is and how important it is that we work with our allies to keep good relations with all of these countries, especially Russia. It's actually not that bad a quote. And, and I, I always feel like bad apologizing for Sarah Palin, but she got a bad rap on it actually, because you know, everybody thinks it's cool when Gorbachev says it, but not when Sarah says it. Um, anyway, uh, so that, um, one second. Um, so that then is kind of the basis from which uh, myself and my research team has really kind of taken on this project of trying to look at the Arctic territorial imaginary. You know, where do they fit with the modern territorial imaginary? and where and how have they um, distinguished themselves. And in particular, that led to a research project, which again, I've now sort of wrapped up, um, looking at, first of all, what are sort of Arctic policy makers, or at least policy involved people, um, what are their conceptions of the Arctic as geophysical space? Is it seen as land, as water, as ice, as normal space, as exceptional space? And then similarly, how is it seen socioculturally as part of the national core, as a sub-national indigenous group's homeland, as a lost hearth of the natu national soul, as a resource colony that's basically empty of humans, a space of everyday activities, a home, or, or maybe actually just a space that's simply forgotten. And then how do these perspectives get expressed in policy prescriptions? And of course, how do these all impact each other? Um, so, with that kind of sort of key set of questions, um, I sort of, through various kind of intentional and not intentional uh, mechanisms, ended up sort of putting this team together. And I won't try to explain how we all actually communicated with each other, except there's a lot of Skype calls, obviously. Um, this is all sort of my thank you slide, I guess, as well. Um, but to make a long story short, we ended up conducting over 150 interviews with over 200 people, mostly in these places that you see uh, marked out on the map, and eventually came out with this wonderful book available for sale at you know, a bookstore near you or Amazon or wherever, and I should have bought a copy and didn't. But um, it's actually a trick title, okay? Um, in fact, I'm looking forward to the first book review where somebody hasn't actually read the book and I'll immediately tell by the way that they misread the title because when you see the title Contesting the Arctic, you probably imagine something like this, that it's about states all engaging in what Klaus Dodd calls flag planting and finger pointing 
uh, one way or another contesting that the object is their territory. That's actually not the contest we're talking about. Uh, rather, what we're talking about is a contest over territorial imaginaries. And in particular, we've identified six territorial imaginaries, uh, each of which actually gets a chapter in the book, Paranolias, Frozen Ocean, Indigenous Statehood, Resource Frontier, Transcendent Nationhood, Nature Reserve. I'll talk about each of them in a second. Um, these six territorial imaginaries and a seventh territorial imaginary, which is basically the modern territorial imaginary, or what we call the trend toward normalization. Um, and just to kind of give away the end of the book, you know, effectively it's sort of this one that's winning. But it's a more complicated story than that because even as the object is being normalized, there's a continual articulation with these other six imaginaries, in part because, again, those paired geophysical and geopo geopolitical binaries just don't work as well in Arctic space for, for numerous reasons. Um, so turning to these imaginaries a bit, uh, first of all, um, terra nullius. Uh, this is, most of you probably know, is the Latin term for unclaimed but claimable space. It's actually often forgotten when people define terra nullius. It's not just unclaimed. It's unclaimed but potentially claimable. Uh, in the case of the Arctic, what that basically means is that the normal land-water distinction that applies elsewhere, where land is claimable, land can be turned into territory, land can become brown space, and water can't, so it becomes blue space, that doesn't apply. Um, instead, uh, somehow or other, the entire Arctic can be claimed. There's something about Arctic water that's not so watery, that's not so a-territorial, that can somehow be brought into to the state. Um, so specifically, the ocean is not res extra commercium, a space that cannot be possessed and traded, but rather res nullius, a space that is not possessed, but in fact can be. And we see this in um, various instances actually of flag planting, since we were talking about flag planting. Um, this is from the uh, 1909 Perry Henson expedition to the North Pole. I say maybe because there's still this debate about whether they actually were at the North Pole when they planted that flag or whether they kind of missed by 30, 40 miles. I'm not gonna get into that. Let's just assume they're at the North Pole, okay? And um, anyway, so Admiral Perry planted the flag, American flag, somewhere near the North Pole, maybe at it. And when he got back, I believe it's to Newfoundland uh, where he had his first uh, access to a telegraph machine, he sent a telegram to uh, US President Taft saying, have honor, place North Pole at your disposal. Kind of nice gift, right? Well, actually, Taft didn't think so. He wrote back, thanks for your interesting and generous offer. I do not know exactly what I could do with it. It must have really been disappointing to Perry because it's like he had worked really hard to plant this damn thing. And Taft's like, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, but actually, it's interesting because it's not clear what Taft meant. But, and I've not been able to find supporting documentation that maybe Rich knows something about this, I don't know. Um, but I've not been able to find what Taft really meant by this because he might have meant, you know, this is ocean. You know, the, the, where you planted this flag is in the middle of the ocean and we can't go around planting flags in the middle of the ocean because that would undermine the whole basis of international law, including this freedom of navigation that's at the root of, of already then US naval policy. Or what he might have meant is it's in the middle of nowhere and it would take an incredible amount of money and effort and military troops and all that to actually make any serious claim to occupancy that could turn this into genuine sovereignty and it's just not worth it. 
I'm not actually sure which he meant by that. But either way, effectively, he's saying that, you know, either way, it's pointing to this kind of poor fit between uh, sort of ideals of what Arctic space is and the, the uh, geophysical realities of it. Um, maybe even more interesting is that the flag itself, if it's still standing, which it probably isn't, but if by any chance this flag is still standing, it now would be located quite far from the coordinates that mark the North Pole due to the shifting ice fields of the region. Uh, while we're on flag plantings, of course, I can't talk about flag plantings and not talk about this one also. Of course, the famous 2007 Russian flag being planted on the seabed at the North Pole, um, which again kind of questions the idea of um, you know, what is water and what is land? And is the ocean in the Arctic somehow different than ocean elsewhere and maybe has some kinds of land-like claimable, territorializable properties? Um, and that was then picked up by various commentators and statesmen after the flag planting happened. So you had um, Artur Chilangarov, who was actually one of the people who went down in the submersible planting the flag, saying the Arctic is Russian. We must prove the North Pole is an extension of the Russian landmass. Um, and then that point was picked up on by Canada's foreign minister, Peter Mackay, who said, we established a long time ago that these are Canadian waters, and this is Canadian property. The question of sovereignty of the Arctic is not a question. It's clear. It's our country. It's our property. It's our water. The Arctic is Canadian. So again, they're kind of saying, this is water. This is ours. That gets very problematic. And actually, sort of other people from these two states both realized, whoa, tone it down a bit. Because you're beginning to challenge some of the fundamental bases of international law, and you're basically challenging that modern territorial imaginary. And once you do that, could potentially sort of all kinds of cracks can emerge in the idealization of state territory and its, its outside. So just a few days after Chirangarov made that statement, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said, the aim of the expedition is not to stake Russia's claim, but to show that our shelf reaches to the North Pole, and he meant that within the context of outer continental shelf research, which is a whole other thing I'm not going to get into the technicalities of. And in Canada, Peter Mackay was rebutted just a few days later by Peter Mackay, who said, this isn't the 15th century. You can't go around the world and just plant flags and say, we're claiming this territory, even though that's kind of like exactly what he had done two days earlier. But not Canada's brightest politician, I might add. Um, so, uh, and then this continues. So what you see here is states and others claiming that the Arctic is kind of just like everywhere else with respect to geophysics, geopolitics, and how those pair together. At one level, they say the modern territorial imaginary applies there just fine, but then they don't really act that way. And just as another example of that, uh, again, on Canada, uh, we see the uh, official map of uh, the Canadian North in Canada's National Atlas that's put out by Natural Resources Canada, where they draw what are called spectral lines, basically from the northwestern, uh, sorry, yeah, northwest and northeast corners of Canadian territory. They draw these straight lines going up to the North Pole. Um, actually, prior to about 1910, there was some movement toward defining the North this way, that each country would get a wedge, kind of like what many of you are used to seeing on Antarctica maps. But ever since then, international law has been quite clear that Arctic space is just like anywhere else, which is to say you control land territory, and then you can control territory, you get some authority over various levels of water 
going out from that land territory. And yet Canada draws you, and in fact, gives you on the legend, says international boundary, frontier international. Um, so they're kind of having it both ways. They're, they're actually claiming, no, this is special. There's a different way of dividing space in the Arctic, and actually we get a whole lot more of it. In fact, arguably even more sort of outrageous is the circumpolar equivalent of this map, where Canada draws those lines to themselves, but not for anyone else. So they're basically saying, we get to define the Arctic differently, but no, nobody else does. So all this other ocean is just normal ocean that we get to go through, but we get our own Arctic going up to the wedge. Again, that's not the official position of the Canadian government, yet the Canadian government issues these maps and, and still does. So there's kind of a, a, um, a mixed message there, for sure. Um, second imaginary is that of what we call frozen sea. And actually, T3 is an example of this. In fact, it's the example we begin the chapter with on it. This is the idea that the Arctic is not so different that the rules don't apply, which is kind of what we saw hinted at in the Terramilius imaginary, but rather the idea that they do require some sort of adaptation. Um, we see this, again, turning to Canada, uh, with Canada's drawing of straight baselines around the Arctic archipelago. Um, now basically, in the law of the sea, you first determine what are the outer limits of your island, of your land space, and then, as I've mentioned, that's been used for calculating territorial waters and exclusive economic zones, all these bands of ocean sovereign rights, if not sovereignty. Uh, there are provisions in the law of the sea for making it simpler, because obviously a lot of coastlines you know, are jagged all over the place. And so there are provisions in certain geometric conditions for not actually going in and out of the coastline, but sort of simplifying it and drawing what are called straight baselines. Uh, Canada obviously did this here. There are questions about whether, in fact, Canada's archipelago meets the conditions for drawing those baselines, but that's at least a debate. I mean, and it, it is very, rather vague in the law of the sea what the conditions are. But what's more interesting is part of how Canada justified this was not just based on the shape of the coastline and the outlined islands and indentations and bays and that kind of thing. They also said, that water inside the Canadian archipelago is not normal water, and it's a little more land-like, and that allows for different kinds of rights. So when Secretary of State Joseph Clark, Joe Clark, um, announced the straight baselines to Parliament in 1985, he said, Canada's sovereignty in the Arctic is indivisible. It embraces land, sea, and ice. Canada's Arctic islands are joined, not divided by the waters between them. They are bridged for most of the year by ice. From time immemorial, Canada's Inuit people have used and occupied the ice as they have used and occupied the land. And what was fascinating was 20 years later, I interviewed somebody from Canada's Department of Foreign Affairs who had almost the exact same talking point. He said, we're dealing with virtually the world's only archipelago, certainly the world's only large archipelago, which has ice-covered areas throughout its surface. The question is, what is the status of that ice vis-a-vis -vis the land around it? At some point, we may end up before an international court, and we will bring evidence that shows the people of the Canadian North, Canadian citizens, in the wintertime, have treated the ice exactly the same as the land. And we'll make a very strong argument for that. So again, it's this idea that that land-water divide just doesn't apply in the same way in the North. Um, and that actually has come out in, in law in certain ways in Canada's Arctic Water Species Protection Act, which I'm not going to talk about and actually Article 234, which is the one article in Enclos that does mention that water can sometimes be frozen, I think in a lot of ways in this tradition. 
Right, I'm going to go quicker through the uh, remaining imaginaries. Uh, the next one we talk about is that of an indigenous statehood. And in a way, this is kind of the least radical. I mean, in one sense, it's the most radical of the imaginaries because it's directly tied to a direct political project. But in a way, it's the least radical in saying the Arctic is different. It's kind of saying the Arctic is quantitatively different. There are the people there who have not yet achieved their sovereign independence. But otherwise, there's nothing that special about it. And this comes out in particular in the Greenlandic independence movement, uh, basically saying that the Arctic can fit within the modern territorial imaginary. It just needs a new player recognized. And one thing we talk about a lot in the book is how the Greenland independence movement really distances itself from a lot of these other imaginaries, imaginaries based on circumpolarity, on ethnic politics, on gradations of sovereignty, which you see in the relatively high levels of autonomy uh, achieved by indigenous people in Alaska and especially in Canada. Uh, instead, they you know, pretty much favor the, the classic state model. Uh, the fourth imaginary is that of a resource frontier. Um, this is a sort of three-map set put out by the U.S. Geological Survey, very, very widely reproduced, showing um, oil and gas potential in the Arctic. And what I really find fascinating about this map set is that they didn't draw the state boundary lines on it. In fact, you actually have to look at these maps for quite a while to figure out which is which. And then you sort of can see Greenland, and then you can kind of figure out the rest from there. But it was an interesting decision not to do that. And I think that actually ends up kind of communicating that the resource richness of this space kind of overrides the idea of territorial propinquity. It's kind of a space maybe not quite out there for the taking, but at least out there for the extracting. It's, it's an open space that somehow in its character has this different character, which means it's, it's a resource frontier. It's actually a little bit like terra nullius, except instead of saying this is the space that's claimable by states, it's sort of special in that it's very claimable by states, it's kind of special in that it's very usable by enterprises. Um, the fifth imaginary is that of transcendent nationhood. Um, the idea that there is some circumpolar indigenous identity or at least an Inuit identity that gets complicated in itself um, that transcends territorial divisions and somehow exists over and above them as well as within them. And we see this particularly in a lot of the work of the Inuit Circumpolar Council. Um, the ICC actually has directly taken on this issue of what does it mean to have sovereign territory in the north. Um, and uh, in 2009, they issued their Declaration on Sovereignty, which actually proposes a very different way of linking the geophysical nature of space with the institutions and norms um, of that, that typically mediate expressions of identity and belonging. And it's important to note that this Declaration on Sovereignty was not a declaration of independence. It wasn't saying we, are an we should be an independent Inuit state. And it wasn't even a declaration of sovereignty. It wasn't saying we are a sovereign people. Rather, it was a declaration on sovereignty. And what the declaration basically says is we recognize that we live in a world of sovereign states. We're not one. We're never going to be one. You know, we're a very small population. We're spread out. We're on the margins of these other states. And yet, those state sovereignty over these northern regions is dependent on us being participating citizens of those polities. And therefore, their sovereignty should have kind of conditions attached to it that recognize our particular role both within those state boundaries and across those state boundaries. 
But what's really interesting is that in making that case, they actually refer to the geophysicality of the region as well. So uh, the first article of the Declaration on Sovereignty reads, Inuit live in the vast circumpolar region of land, sea, and ice, known as the Arctic. We depend on the marine and terrestrial plants and animals supported by the coastal zones of the Arctic Ocean, the tundra, and the sea ice. The Arctic is our home. So they're very explicitly here noting that differences in the materiality of Arctic space creates unity, not division, something that actually parallels quite well with the Gorbachev quote. And I don't think it's coincidental that this assertion of unity amidst geophysical difference similarly is used to support an assertion of self-determination which seeks to work outside the exclusivity of the modern state. In other words, the two halves of the binary, as they're challenging one half of the binary, that's being used to support uh, a challenge to the other half of the binary. The ICC uses the way in which the region challenges the presumed geophysical binary. They're basically saying we don't live in a world of impermeable boundaries between land and water to then support their challenge to the geopolitical binary. We don't live in a world of impermeable boundaries between insides and outsides of state territories. And indeed, there are social entities that cross those borders and that exist within those borders, i.e. us, the Inuit nation, that must be taken into account within sovereignty. Um, the sixth and, and final imaginary is that of a nature reserve, the idea of the Arctic as some sort of extra social space of nature. Uh, in some ways, the latter three of these imaginaries, uh, nature reserve, resource frontier, and transcendent nationhood, all kind of get grouped together in the sense that they kind of suggest there's something about the Arctic that goes beyond state territorialization, that exists above and, and beyond that contrasting that with the first three imaginaries, which all actually said you can do a greater degree of territorialization in the Arctic. Um, and I also do want to point out that for all these imaginaries, but especially this one and Terra Nullius, the first and the last, the most extreme in a sense, you're not going to typically find people directly advocating them. You know, I mean, the most radical environmentalists don't say there's no one in the Arctic or they shouldn't matter. And um, likewise, you know, nobody's going to completely say there should be a scramble for the Arctic. Uh, it, it's not that. It's rather that these are kind of discourses that exist in the background and get appealed to um, sometimes consciously, sometimes not consciously by various people arguing for Arctic futures. But then, as I mentioned, there is this final imaginary, which is normalization, the modern territorial imaginary. Can, in fact, that simply be applied to the Arctic? And actually, I think in a lot of ways, that is what's happening uh, today. Um, to some extent, we actually didn't see that coming. I think partly because the Arctic actually changed quite a bit in the years that we conducted this research. Also, I think we were naive and stupid. But um, you get to fix, fix the balance of those two. I'm not sure which. <laughs> but uh, the Arctic Council is actually a good case in point. We can talk about that over here. Um, but the Arctic Council is actually an interesting case in point here because the Arctic Council initially was kind of founded in a way that maybe not consciously, but certainly had strong elements of some of these other imaginaries. Um, historically, and arguably even today, most of the work of the Arctic Council is done in working groups that are devoted to doing research and sometimes sort of policy ideas, but not serious policy implementation on mostly environmental issues. One of them's on development and the others are all on various environmental research issues of the six working groups. 
Uh, also, the, Ar the Arctic Council has uh, established this unique role for permanent participants for uh, six indigenous groups that have a status not quite as high as the eight member states, but considerably higher than a, an observer, an NGO observer. And that's different than any other intergovernmental organization where it's assumed that minority groups within a nation state will simply be represented by that state government. Uh, it's a different situation here. So there was a lot of sort of elements of some of those other imaginaries in the, the initial uh, thinking of the Arctic Council. In a lot of ways, and I'm not gonna go into the details of this here, the Arctic Council has become a lot more like a normal, normal, quote unquote, uh, intergovernmental organization. And there's still certainly roles for the working groups and for the permanent participants and all that. But in a lot of ways, the Arctic Council has moved more into a, being an agent of normalization, one could say, in the North. It's not really that surprising the Arctic Council has done this because the Arctic Council is fundamentally an intergovernmental organization. What's more surprising is you even have folks like Greenpeace doing this. Um, this was an art installation done by Greenpeace just before the 2011 United Nations General Assembly. And um, of course, at one level, as one would expect, Greenpeace is working within the nature preserve imaginary. You know, they're pointing to the geophysical exoticism, the indeterminacy, the frag fragility of the Arctic, as well as, of course, that it's a space that we've just got to love. Um, but of course, it's also interesting that they've made this hearth out of the flags of the nation states uh, within the UN General Assembly. Effectively here, states are being given the burden of responsible stewardship, which is what you see in UNCLOS, what you see in intergovernmental organizations and the like. It's by the way an interesting kind of argument because it kind of knocks Greenpeace out of the picture. You know, if it's only about these guys making the Arctic a good place, then what's the point of Greenpeace? It's probably why they stuck their um, ship in the official photograph too. They said, oh yeah, and it's us also, we also matter. Um, so what do we learn from this? I think a key lesson in particular is that even as notions of sovereign territory, normative geopolitics, the modern territorial imaginary, whatever you want to call it, as these are challenged by the geophysical indeterminacy and dynamism of the Arctic, they are being reaffirmed, certainly in a lot of ways. But that reaffirmation is not a simple linear process. There's all kinds of articulations that happen. As we've seen proposed alternatives from those of the ICC declaration to Greenpeace to the opening of the Arctic in a corporate free-for-all, those all do indeed reject the ideal of a world divided into spaces that are governed by mutually exclusive state sovereigns. Um, they, 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 don't, they don't fully reject it, but they do complicate those ideals. And that's again where adaptations occur. Um, to me, kind of the, the geophysical and geopolitical conditions of the Arctic in a lot of ways are summed up by a photograph that actually I took um, in Iqaluit in, in northern Canada, looking out at Frobisher Bay. And um, this photo actually tells, sort of speaks a lot to me in a lot of ways. One thing it tells me is something that I've long suspected which is that in an awful lot of what I do, I'm unconsciously channeling Doreen Massey. Uh, this actually was really weird. I got back from Iqaluit and looked at my photos and I had full space on my desk and I'm like, whoa, that's, that's weird. Um, but also this image is suggestive to me of a world where there's a messy and dynamic interface between land and water and ice and which therefore is a world that is constantly in motion where the lines and logics that define territory 
are continually being redrawn through state and social practice and through geophysical dynamism and ambiguity. And although I don't know what led Doreen Massey to you know, choose the photo for the cover of her book, I assume it was many of the same kinds of um, thoughts given where she goes in the book. So I just want to conclude by talking a bit of sort of where I'm going from here, uh, partly because it's new stuff that I'm excited to talk about, but also I think you know this does raise the question. Okay, let's say you accept my argument. You know that let's see, let's assume that. Okay, it's sort of like getting to the North Pole. Okay, let's say I was right. Um, let's say you know so the the complication of geophysics, the fact that we don't live in a land, in a world of a simple, stable, binary division between land and water, that, that complicates our notions of territory because territory assumes these things about what land is and what water is. It assumes brown space and blue space and makes them all seem like they logically come together. Where do we go from there to understand more about the world as it were? And I want to briefly just talk about three projects that are in various states of becoming uh, with me. Um, the first is um, actually um, referred to slightly in the intro, uh, the Wet Ontologies Project, which is something that I've been undertaking with Tim Peters at Aberystwyth. We've had three publications of various sorts come out in the last few months on this. And in a lot of ways, it's built on the Arctic work, but not directly. It, it really builds more off of work that both of us individually and together have been doing on the ocean and what it means to think of the ocean's fluidity and its depth and its volume, and how that can lead to a rethinking of territory, because the ocean is clearly not a space that's naturally beyond territory, but it can teach us a lot about territory, because in some senses, these pro the, the dynamism, the volume, the flows, even the emotions that are so obvious in the ocean are actually things that exist on land too, but we can't see them as well there. And in that sense, there's some linkages with the Arctic, because that's part of what we're saying about the Arctic too a lot of this misfit between elements of the binary that are so clear in the Arctic are in fact going on elsewhere as well. Um, the second project I want to talk about is uh, the Ice Law Project. And this came out of something I mentioned a while ago, th this um, kind of realization that in the law of the sea, outside the ocean, but in the law of the sea, there is almost no recognition that the ocean is sometimes frozen. And yet, from the perspective of a resident, a shipper, an oil driller, you know, anybody, it really matters a lot whether ocean is liquid or frozen. And so kind of the, the initial question here is what would it mean to create an international law of the sea or a, a, say maybe a series of new articles or an appendix to the law of the sea for frozen water? Could it be done? What would have to go into that? And in fact, last summer I assembled a team of about 20 uh, anthropologists and state theorists and legal theorists um, to come together in Durham for a couple days to, to kind of begin to hash this out. And actually quite consciously about half the people were not Arctic people. I actually wanted that to get other sorts of perspectives in there. And it was an interesting exercise because it sort of worked and it sort of didn't work. Um, we found out this was kind of a problematic venture uh, because first of all, by focusing on sea ice, you're still reaffirming a binary between different kinds of places. And not only that, but different kinds of places in very specific temporalities. And so that's problematic geophysically, because of course, as I've already pointed out many times, it's land, sea, and for that matter, ice water, or ice liquid water distinction, you know, is, is a 
problematic place to start. It's also, of course, problematic anthropologically because if you're trying to build regulatory systems that actually work to how space is encountered in people's lives, as Ali mentioned, you know, that sea-land divide, uh, divide doesn't have the same meaning when it's all frozen. Um, so the ice part was problematic. Also, the law part was problematic uh, in the sense that law is so designed for you start off by identifying a problem. It's about specific static definitions, and then you define solutions. And actually, some of the lawyers in particular sort of really pointed to that. So now we had a real problem, because I had an ice law project, and it couldn't be about ice, and it couldn't be about law. Actually, it's an even worse problem than that, because I'd already bought the domain name. So icelawproject.org. Of course, it is about ice, and it is about law, but it's also not. And that got me thinking, how do I convey this? And I thought, aha, an acronym. So the ice law project is now, because uh, an acronym both says it is what it spells, and it, it's something more, right? That's what I wanted. Um, don't try this at home, kids, okay? Um, so it is now the Project on Indeterminate and Changing Environments, Law, the Anthropocene, and the World. Uh, we'll see if funders buy that little trick. I, the thing that's really kind of daft is like law standing for law. Otherwise it works, but I could not come up with another L. If anyone has one, that'd be fantastic. Um, but, but what we're trying to, so in, in addition to changing the name and broadening the scope, kind of developed a format that I think actually fits a little better. Uh, so the aim is no longer to try to find a single solution for a single space. That was problematic in part because people come from dis different disciplines, in part because, as I mentioned, it's actually ontologically problematic for what I want to do. Um, instead, to try to build sort of more of an expanded network, have different teams of people looking at how the frozen nature of and the climatological and even the remote from a southern perspective uh, nature of Arctic space is affecting mobilities, resources, constructions of territory, and the like. And in particular, the aim is to kind of document some of the regulatory gaps. Where does conventional law not work because of the nature of these spaces? How is that being adapted to? How might it be adapted to better, uh, sort of almost like best practices manuals, and then try to advance theory from that? Um, the other um, one that uh, I'm actually now really kind of kicking off, and uh, hopefully, pending funding, it'll, it'll be really big and absorb most of my life for a very long time, um, is to document notions and practices of territory in ways that account for the complexity, complexities, indeterminacies, and dynamisms of geophysics and place. In other words, to work from these ungrounded spaces, spaces that are not simple land and yet their territory is in some way or another being applied, and from there develop an ungrounded understanding of territory. And sort of my vision here is, and I've actually got a proposal that is going in about a week on this, in, a, in about a week, is to focus specifically on the land-sea interface. There's obviously other places, other ungrounded spaces out there but um, to kind of give it a bit of a focus, look at the land-sea interface, various spaces that as territory is constructed there, <coughs> they, they're not strictly land, which complicates things, but they're not strictly the opposite of land either. Of course, I've already talked a lot about sea ice, uh, but you see this in islands as well. Islands in one sense seem to be the obvious antithesis to the ocean, but in fact, islands always exist in um, correspondence with seas and mainlands and other islands and the like. Uh, and then, of course, with climate change and geoengineering, 
islands are particularly clear, and for that matter, legal excision. Um, islands are, are spaces where, in many ways, territory is, is challenged. Uh, the sea bed, which of course already pointed to a bit with the, the Russian flag planting, is again, it's land, but it's not land, it's ocean. How does that get worked out in a regulatory manner? And then finally, destination vessels, vessels that are not used to go from place to place, but rather that you go to as a place. Again, they're sort of creating land on sea, but they're kind of not at the same time, and how does that all get worked out? So um, that's kind of the, the big projects down the line. And so I just want to conclude, though, by reflecting back on T3. Because if you think about T3, the significance of the case was not that it determined what territory is. Uh, in fact, again, to this day, it's still not clear what an inhabited ice island is in US law. Rather, its significance lies in how it points to the ambiguity that always everywhere underlies the apparent certainties of geophysics and geopolitics that form the modern territorial imaginary. These uncertainties are particularly evident in the Arctic, but they're likely to become more and more apparent elsewhere, particularly in an era of unprecedented anthropogenic change. And that can happen both directly as the properties of space become more evidently dynamic as shorelines change and the like, but also indirectly as new frontiers like the Arctic present possibilities for state-led political organization, spatially fixed investment, and territorial appropriation, notwithstanding their non-normative geophysical properties. To be clear, I don't think the Arctic will be a space where the modern territorial imaginary sees dramatic disintegration. Actually, after all, even T3 was provisionally brought within the state system, or at least the actions that occurred there were. However, the adaptation of territory to a space that challenges the modern territorial imaginary's geophysical and geopolitical presuppositions leads us to question assumptions about what territory can and cannot achieve in a world that never has and never will fit the idealized model of paired geophysical and geopolitical binaries. Thank you. Thank you.